Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure with me in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw this, he became. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, "How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." And those who heard it said, "Who then can be saved?" But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who falls, who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many things more in his present time and in the age to come eternal life. Good morning. Uh, We come to a very interesting part in our study in Romans. We've come to chapter 2. Okay? Now that may shock some of you, but we are there. It's only taken us 13 weeks to get through chapter 1. Hopefully we'll be quicker through chapter 2. But, one of the things we need to do now that we've finished chapter 2 one, and we've looked at the details of chapter one, we need to look at the big picture of chapter one. So in the next uh, four or five minutes, we're going to cover the entire chapter one. (laughs) Here we go. You ready? Chapter one. In chapter one, we learned that Paul was called by God. And Paul was committed to the Romans. He thanked God for their faith. Paul was convinced of the power of the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 17. Now the principles we learned in verses 1 through 17 was that a person's identity will be revealed in what he what is said and done by his words and actions. A heart for God will be revealed ultimately in a heart for people. And a heart for people will be revealed in a heart for the gospel. So if you had a heart for the gospel, you'll have a heart for the people, and you'll share the gospel message. The stronger one's purpose and calling, the more effective one will be. The loftier one's public position, the lower one's private perspective should be. A life should should be based on eternal values and truth. Then, in verses 18 through 20, we talked about the revelation of God's wrath. Then 21 through 23, we talked about the reasons for God's wrath for not glorifying or worshiping the Creator and thanking Him. 
Then in 24 through 32, we talked about the wrath of God, the results of the wrath of God. It makes you depraved in your actions, in your body, and it makes you depraved in your mind, in your thinking. So the principles we get in the second part of Romans 1 is God's eternal power and divine nature have been sufficiently revealed by God in creation to make all human beings accountable for knowledge of Him. No person on earth at any time in history can be excused from accountability for knowing about God. Depravity of mind manifests itself in outward behavior of actions of those who suppress the knowledge of God. Now, the last 13 weeks have been hard. It's been really hard. Especially the last few that we've been talking about sin and the wrath of God. We could have had a visitor come and then complain about us that we don't love sinners. They could have very easily have said that. Well, we're done with that chapter now. Now, Paul changes. He uses a very interesting word in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore. Therefore. Now, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, that's one of the things we've got to figure out. The easy answer is that it refers back to all of chapter 1. Maybe specifically 18 through 31. Talking about the sinfulness and the wrath of man. The wrath of God that's revealed to man. But then it changes gears and moves to those people who think they are good. Now, where do you go to find good people in our culture today? Where do you go? Where do you go? Come on. Come on. Church. Church. So now, after we've been unloving to people outside the church, now we can be unloving to those inside a church. Ah! Now we get to talk about people who are religious. A lot of them in America are at church right now. They are religious. They think they are good. They think the wrath of God mentioned in chapter 1 about people who do things that are evil, sexual sins and antisocial actions, are those that are not them. Because they're good. And they go to church thinking that somehow going to church, they will get an attendance button for coming to church and they will be determined good. And somehow, when they stand before God at the great white throne, they will say, look at the attendance chart. I was in church. Ah, I'm a good person. You should let me into heaven. 
Now, this is a problem for Paul. The religious people in Paul's day were Jewish. The Jewish people thought they were good because they had a special revelation from God. The law. And their law, they could probably hold up and shake in the air and say, because the law, we know what it means to be good. And as long as we do things that are in this book, and we do them more than we do the evil stuff in chapter 1, we are good. And if we're good, then those people that don't come to our church are evil. And they deserve God's wrath. And matter of fact, I will help God display his wrath when I interact with them. And the easiest way for me to interact with them and display God's wrath is to stand above them on a platform, have them look up to me, and I look down on them, and I will judge them. And the... By the way, the Jews had a nickname for Gentiles. You're going to love this. Guess what their nickname for the Gentiles were? No, 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 no. They called them sinners. <laughs> they put themselves up, said, we got God's law. Everybody that doesn't have God's law, they're Gentiles, they are sinners. We have God's law, we're better, we will judge them because they are wicked sinners. Now, of course, the problem is that in our day and age, we sometimes do the same thing that he's going to write about in chapter 2. Therefore, this chapter will step on our toes. Forget that. It will kick us in the backside because it will say things that we think about because we are Christians. We have a Bible we believe in. And that must make us better than everybody else. And natural judgment comes from us to them. And we put them down. Now, Paul is going to wake up the Jewish people in his day and age and I'm going to try to wake up the church people in our day and age. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've come to a point in time, you heard the gospel message, you repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're saved. And judging should not be part of your character. If you are a person that thinks you, by coming to church, 
are saved because you come to church, then you will have a hard time understanding this chapter because you think it's your job to judge others. That's what you're good at. That's how you survive in this world. You judge others because you are a religious person. And by the end of chapter 2, Paul basically will tell you that you need salvation just as much as the Gentiles do. So, here you go. We're going to have a good time in chapter 2. We're going to be talking about good people. A good person. Let me define a good person real quick for you. A good person is someone who judges others and declares who is good or not. A good person is someone who judges others and declares who is good or not. Now, a biblical good person, biblically, is a person who God judges and declares him good. That's a big difference. If you think that you are declared good by coming to church, you have a big, big surprise in chapter 2. You are only good when God judges you and declares you good. It is a gift from God, freely given to you. Nothing you do earns or deserves that. It is a gift from God. Therefore, verse 1, therefore, there's difficulty in understanding how the guilt of sinners in chapter 1 is related to religious people in chapter 2. Some sinners have high ethical standards and live a morally good life. They condemn widespread moral corruption of their fellow sinners just like the Jewish community did in Paul's time. <clears throat> the Greek term, here he's talking about, therefore, refers back seemingly to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The sinner is either one who applauds sin, or two, the sinner is somebody who condemns sin in others. In other words, he judges them. Condemns the sin in others, when in reality they are joining in with sin. The apostle does by showing a greater light that the Gentiles, they yet do the same things. They have greater light than the Gentiles, but they seem to do the same thing. They have the law, and they still sin the same way the Gentiles do. A morally good person cannot shield themselves from God's wrath by good works. Let me say that again. The morally good person cannot shield himself from God's wrath by doing good works. It will not save you. doesn't matter how many times you come to church. In our day and age, this would be a religious person who's tempting to, attempting to earn his way to heaven. The only way to be saved 
is by the righteousness of God, by faith, which wipes out all a man's unrighteousness. Only by the righteousness of God can a person be saved. Everybody with me? Remember, it's not Pastor David. It's Apostle Paul. Send your emails to him. Here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you... who judge, practice the same things. (laughs) I heard a pastor say at one time, you know how sometimes you think of something a long time ago, and you think maybe you said it, you know, and you start taking credit for what you... I wish I could do that. I don't know who said this. But this verse talks about the fact that there's a judge, and you are not it. There is a judge, and you are not it. Here is the sin. What sin is being described in verse 1? What sin is being described in verse 1? Here we go. What sin is being described in verse 1? Number 1, the self-righteous moral pride. The self-righteous moral pride. You have pride in your own self-righteousness. You have pride that you are morally better than everyone else. You think you are above the character of all those evil people out in our evil world. You think that the wrath of God they deserve, but you don't. Because you are righteous by your own definition of moral pride. You have no excuse. The word translated having no excuse is talking about a legal sense. Legally, you're free from the law. You're free from judgment. In Paul's day, the Jewish thought they were morally better than the Gentiles. The problem with our day is that churchgoers believe they're morally better than the non-believers in the world. Moralistically, you would agree with everything that Paul said in verses in chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, that yes, they deserve the wrath of God. Every one of you who passes judgment, you make a decision in your head that you are better than everyone else. Every one of you, all sinners, (laughs) think they're morally pure. All sinners think they're morally good. All sinners think they're good. How many times have you heard about a mass murderer being next door and the neighbor says, he's a good person? Sinners think that everyone is morally good. When you ask them if God will let you into heaven, they say, yes, I'm a good person. And they think that they do more good things than evil things and that somehow God will let them in. Everybody thinks they're good. They pass judgment. They pass judgments about their own sin, and they pass judgments about others' sin. They feel they are morally superior to others. 
and therefore judge them as inferior. This judging comes with a sense of condemnation, putting them down. The act of judging is an attempt to put yourself in the position of God. Whenever you judge, you're putting yourself in a position of God. False security of good works. You believe in your good works. Well, your sin, guess what? Makes you a sinner. What is the sentence given to a moral sinner? What is the sentence given to a moral sinner? Number one, the self-righteous is under the wrath of God. The self-righteous is under the wrath of God. The self-righteous is under the wrath of God. Instead of making your way from the wrath of God, you judge others and put yourself even more under the wrath of God. You think you're morally superior? The sin of pride puts you in a more sinful place than you were before. You judge another, for in in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. You think that they're spiritually inferior to you. You judge them. You do not care about them. You do not care about God's mercy for them. You don't care about God's care for them, their concern for them. You feel they're inferior. They don't deserve God's mercy. The biblical command to love one another is not your command. Your command is to judge your neighbor. And that's what you do. You do not, you, you take scissors and cut out Romans 13, 8, which says, Owe nothing to anyone except love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You don't like that verse. Because you're a judge. But you don't know it. Every time you judge, you condemn yourself. The Jew had both general knowledge of God in creation and also had special revelation of God through the law. And they received the special revelation and thought that made them superior to everyone else. Their greater knowledge of God's truth made them accountable to more truth. And really that's the problem of going to church. If you're not a believer is you are putting upon yourself more condemnation by hearing more of the Word. Because the more of the Word you hear, the more you disobey of the Word. And the more you disobey, the more wrath of God you put yourself under. So Paul is trying to solve a problem with the people who believe they're morally superior. Well, the sin makes a sinner, and the sinner receives a charge. What is it? What's the charge given to a moral sinner? What's the charge given to a moral sinner? Number one, the self-righteous hypocrisy. Self-righteous hypocrisy. They are a hypocrite. They are a hypocrite. Now, maybe it's just my experience, but I think there are more hypocrites than believers in churches today. There are more people going to church because they think it's somehow they earn grace from God. 
for who you judge. The moralist wants to reform other people, get them to agree with them. The moralist wants men to adopt what they believe, their preferences, their belief system, that somehow attending church will save them. The Jewish in the day thought they had to accept the moral Mosaic law. They practiced the same thing. The problem is you practice the same sins. You practice the same sins. The sins found in chapter 1 are the same things that the religious people in church today do. They still sin. They believe they do God's stuff on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, we get to do whatever we want. And whatever it is, is sin. And we judge others, we put others down, we put ourselves up, we take the sin of pride almost as a spiritual gift. And put ourselves on a pedestal. We practice the same. You cannot judge themselves by their own standards. Sinners are prone to be severe in their judgments of others. Self-righteous hypocrites make two grave mistakes. Two big mistakes. One, they underestimate the height of God's righteousness. They put their God's righteousness down low where we can attain it. The other is they underestimate the depth of our sin. <laughs> they say their sin is not that bad. And they put down God's righteousness and lower it. What they're doing is changing the view of God. They're changing who God is. And eventually what they do is they create a God in their mind that is not the God of the Bible. And I don't care what you call them. Whatever you do, you worship that God. That's not worshiping the God of the Bible. You do the same thing. You may even judge your, yourself or judge others, but you're not judging yourself the way God would judge you. God is a different judge. Now, Jesus came into this culture back then. He saw the problems with the Jews, thinking of themselves high and mighty. He's had the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. He saw their hypocrisy, and he spoke about it at a great number of times. Matter of fact, it seems like um, one of the problems we have in the Gospels is trying to figure out where the Sermon on the Mount occurred, because it seems like every sermon Jesus preached, it seemed to be something about the Sermon on the Mount. So, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting to his conclusion. He's getting to the problem that's going on in the culture he found himself in, which is pretty much the same culture we find ourselves in today. And he gives answers to the problems. So the sin makes a sinner. <laughs> then we have charges against the sinner. And now we have the work of admonishment. The work of admonishment. What is the difference between judging and admonishment? Judging and admonishment. Now we hear 
verses all the time about not judging. But we have several hundred verses, I don't know how many, talking about admonishing one another, which is basically judging one another. So there's a difference going on here. Now, we don't have any verses that say we admonish non-believers. So we don't have any verses that teach us to admonish non-believers. But we are to admonish other believers. So, what is going on? Matthew chapter 7. Everybody there? Verse 1. I had a friend that would always quote this one to me. And he was serious when he would quote it to me. He says, one, verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Every time I would talk to him about admonishing somebody, he would say, well, I don't judge because I don't want to be judged. And I say, well, that's really not what the verse is saying. Judging is always, always self-righteous hypocrisy. Judging is always self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, if you are judging someone because, let's take gossip, let's say you're the best gossiper in the church, okay? That's your spiritual gift. You are a good gossiper. Now, you go and judge somebody in the church who gossiped one time. Now, for you to judge them would be wrong. Because that would be hypocritical of you to judge them. Because you're the best gossiper in the entire church. When you claim to be something you're not, you will fall into this trap of heaping more wrath upon you than you had before. Judging is always self-righteous hypocrisy. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Judge theirs in present tense. It's talking about continually practicing judgment. Constantly, every day you're judging, you're judging, you're judging, you're judging. Matthew, by the way, uses a special word for judgment, which seems to look forward to the future judgment that will come at the great white throne. He seems to use that term that looks forward to the future judgment. To be discerning is necessary. To be hypocritical is wrong. Matthew 18 talks about admonishing. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. He listens to you. You have won your brother. You go and talk to him in private. This judgment seems to be done in public. It always will try to put more people, impress more people on how righteous the judge is and how sinful the other person is. It'll try to put you up and them down. That is judging. That is hypocritical. Because you probably sin just like he does. Do not be judged. Aorist tense. The tense of the verb judge signifies a wish, subjunctive, a wish not to be at once in the final judgment. You do not want to be at the great white throne. 
But if you are in church, playing church, trying to do good things, you will be at the great white throne. And you will be judged at that final end times judgment. You first judge yourself and prepare yourself for that day of judgment. Verse 2, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. You will be judged. Jesus warned them against hypocritical judging. You do not want to be a hypocrite in this life judging others because if you're a hypocrite, even though you attend church, even though you seem to be doing good moral things, you will end up at the great white throne where you will be judged by a holy God. Second, What's the difference between judging and admonishment? Judging is always self-righteous hypocrisy. And then two, admonishment is always self-examination, then counsel. Self-examination, then counsel. Always when you counsel somebody and you have to admonish them, you have to talk them about their sin. You want to get them privately away from everybody else. You want to do it one-on-one. You want to do it privately so you talk to them so you can understand what's going on in their life and you want to help them to be more like Jesus Christ. You will counsel them. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? You do not watch the log in your own eye. The heart is deceitful. You may have a sinful log in your eye and you may not notice it because you are deceived by your own sin. When you judge others, we should make sure that you examine yourself that you don't have a two-by-four in your eye. Now, a two-by-four in your eye would be painful. And if you got a two-by-four in your eye this morning, you need to stop at the throne of grace, repent of your sin, and ask forgiveness. And ask God to move that log from your eye. Verse 4, Or how can you say that your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. The speck, you're trying to take somebody's dust speck in their eye, when you got a two by four in your eye and you're trying to get it out, how silly is that? The picture of a man with a two by four stuck in his eyes trying to remove a speck of dust from another man's eye, it's ridiculous. My father one day was working in the garage. He came into the house, got me, and he says, You got to get the piece of metal out of my eye. And I said, Say what? And my dad had a little bee speck of metal in his eye. And he wanted me to get it out of his eye. How foolish is that? It took forever to get that thing out. Can you imagine if I tried to get that piece of metal out of my dad's eye if I had a two-by-four in my eye? That does not work. But we have churches and churches and churches trying to do the same thing. 
People have dust in their eye and they need Jesus Christ and we judge them and put them down and try to make them feel little while we feel big. We're not honest. We don't face up to our own sins and confess them. We cannot see clearly enough to help others. If you have sin in your life, you cannot help others. The log has two extremes to it. You need spiritual examination of yourself. The first deception you make is you belittle sin. You say, well, it's not that big a two-by-four. I've seen other people with bigger two-by-fours. Second, you should look by faith to Jesus Christ who can take that two-by-four out of your eye. Verse 5. This is the problem my friend has quoting the verse to me in verse 1 because he doesn't see verse 5. He says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Admonishment happens, and it's supposed to happen. And within a church that's healthy, there's admonishment going on. We help one another with the specks of dust of sin in each other's eye. And if you don't help each other, we're going to have bigger, bigger problems. Let's say, here you go. Let's say you saw me earlier this week with my babysitting the two dogs of my son. The big Rottweiler, 200-pound dog, and the little 30-pound husky dog. Crazy dog. We call him demon dog, okay? Now, if you saw me trying to walk demon dog, and I have this leash that's 30 feet long, okay, so he stays far from me when I walk him. If you saw me walking him, and you saw him go around my legs three times, and then trip me up and I fall on the ground. Now, if such a thing would happen, and you happen to see me get up after being tripped by a demon dog, you can't expect a little explosion. And you may see me sin. Now, what are you supposed to do? As you drive by laughing? You're supposed to help me get the fleck out of my eye. The way you do that is to make sure you don't have any two-by-fours in your eye so that you don't beat your husky dog that you're babysitting called demon dog yourself. You come to me privately and you say, you know what? I was driving by laughing when I saw you walking demon dog and I saw him trip you up and I saw you react. And I just want to make sure that my pastor doesn't have an anger issue sinning. This is all make-believe, right? Okay? So, now, that is how you do admonishment. You do not get up next Sunday morning at church and say, take over the microphone, and say, you saw your pastor sin, I think we ought to get rid of him. That would be judging. Especially 
if you have dogs, you get mad at every week. Am I communicating here? <laughs> Admonishment is supposed to go on, but there are certain ways we do it. We don't do it to embarrass or hurt. We do it to build up and make stronger. Judging is by nature to put down, not build up. The purpose of self-judgment is to prepare ourselves to serve others. You constantly, constantly, constantly prepare yourself to serve others. You know, we used to, we used to have quiet time before church service, which, which in a ways was good and in a ways were bad. But we have to prepare our hearts to serve others. Whatever is the most difficult part of your week, you need to, before you start the event, you need to prepare your heart. You need to confess all your sins you can think of and ask God's forgiveness and then go into that meeting and go into that job, go into that work, go into that uh, round of golf, go into whatever it is that's going to be stressful and you prepare yourself by making sure that your sin life is taken care of. Then you can minister to others. If you are controlled by sin, you cannot help anyone. They actually need to be helping you. So, when we do not judge ourselves, we only hurt ourselves. But we are also hurt those we could minister to. But if we, we have sins in our lives... We try to help others. We are being hypocritical and we're judging. Admonishment is good. Judging is sin. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Verse 2. And we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. What is true of both a wicked sinner and a moral sinner? A wicked sinner that does those things in chapter 1, and a moral sinner, which is a person who judges others because they think they're morally better than somebody else, what is their sin? What is the truth? First, the coming just, and by just I mean rightly agreeable to the truth, the coming just, righteous, all-knowing judgment of God is coming. One day, He will come. One day, you will be judged. <clears throat> Either you will be judged to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, or you will be judged at the great white throne. You will be judged justly, rightly agreeable with the truth. That's why many times it says, by your actions you'll be judged. It's not by your actions that you're saved, but it's by your actions you'll be judged. In other words, the rightly, the just way is agreeable to the truth, and it will be seen in your actions. Righteous, all-knowing judgment of God is coming. We know, Oida, God, he, you have a head knowledge that there's a coming day of judgment, and it will come. And the judgment of God here is a different word than verse 1. This judgment talks about <laughs> the the. Work of God 
that usually occurs in a negative outcome of judgment. It's talking about the judgment, the work of judgment. Greater knowledge brings you in a greater responsibility to live according to the knowledge that you have. It rightly falls. God may be the judge, made the judge, and he will not lie or be unjust about his decisions. His judgment will be according to the facts, true facts of God's nature and man's condition. And because you practice such things, the hypocrite wants to judge by his appearance rather than by his true character. Most people accept him for what he pretends to be. He assumes God will also judge him the same way by what he appears to be. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm. Psalm 96. Psalm 96. <clears throat> Take your time. We all need to be in, the, in this passage. Psalm 96. If you didn't turn to Romans or you didn't turn to Matthew, turn now to Psalm 96. You need to see this. I need you to believe me when I read this to you. <clears throat> 96, Psalm 96. Everybody there? Okay, here we go. Verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. It's right after verse 12. Okay, verse 13. Notice what it says. Before the Lord, for He is... What's the word? Coming. The Lord, He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. What are the reasons to obey the command that God is coming to judge? Why is it important for you not to be a hypocrite? Why is it important for you to admonish people? Why is it important to acknowledge your sinfulness and re repent of it and confess it to God? Why is it important? Because the judge is coming. The Messiah is coming. The judge is coming. The Messiah will rule by righteousness. The judge will rule by righteousness. He will do things that are right. His judgment will be right. It will be according to the facts. What you deserve. He is coming. He's lifting his eyes up, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will rule by judge by righteousness. He will be, he will have his holiness in action. That's what righteousness is. Holiness in action. God's attribute of holiness will be seen in righteous actions. And he will rule with faithfulness. God's rule will be with faithfulness. The Messiah's rule will be faithfulness. God acts in goodness according to His nature and His promises that God will be trustworthy and reliable. He will judge you based upon His promises. His administration will accord with truth of His character and He will declare His will and He will be faithful in pledging a way of escape when you fall into temptation and God will protect you from sin, and He'll give you a group of people that He calls your church, and they will admonish you when sin comes so that you are kept away from judgment. 
God does not want you to come to church. God wants you to be in relationship with Him. He wants you to be His son. His firstborn son. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. And going to church, you can't do that. Being good, you can't do that. Being moral, you can't do that. You can't do it. No more than the sinner and the things that we listed last week, the 21 sins. You can't do it without help. Because God is coming and He will judge. Fact. He will judge. Application. Will I help my sinning friends by sharing with them good biblical counsel that wickedness will be judged by a holy God and that by being moral or good will not save them from the wrath of God? Will I help my sinning friends by sharing with them a good biblical counsel that wickedness will be judged by a holy God and that being moral or good will not save them from the wrath of God. The problem is that we have too many people going to church thinking going to church will save them. It's just like the little boy. First, second grade. How old's first, second grade? What, eight years old? Eight years, nine years, whatever. He's eight-year-old boy. He went to his father, and he says, Father, I'm just as tall as you are. Now, he's a little boy. Father thought, that's kind of weird. What do you mean you're as tall as I am? The little boy says, well, you're six feet tall. So I got a stick that was just as tall as me, and I broke it into six pieces, and I'm calling each one a foot. So I'm six feet tall, just like you. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is the standard that he's using is not six feet. And that's exactly what we do when we judge one another. We disregard what is truth, and we make something up that is sinful and wrong, and we judge other people by a measurement that God does not use. When God comes along to judge us, He'll measure us correctly by His righteousness. You know what? I would be a great pastor. If you died in your sins and you went to a place called Hades to wait and then after your time in Hades you go to a great white throne and God starts reading off your name and all the things you did that were sinful and how you rejected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would be a great pastor if I stood up and said I'll take his place. Wouldn't I? But you know what? I can't do that. 
The only person that can accept Christ for you is you. The only one that can pay for your sins is you. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents. You. How are you doing? How is your sin life? Do you have sins that are out of control? Do you need to stop? Do you need help? Do you need counseling? Do you need to talk to the church elders? Do you need to get right with God? Get right with God. Because it matters. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Just, just for a minute. Do a self-evaluation of your life. First question. Are you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? A lot of hypocrites think they are. But their life actions don't prove it. They sin as much as sinners do. But they do it morally as a moral sinner rather than a wicked sinner. If you're not covered by the blood, that makes you then a moral sinner or a wicked sinner and you need Jesus Christ. Turn to Him today. He'll clean your house. He'll get things set up right. He'll give you the Holy Spirit to help keep you at peace with God. Your life will change. You'll be born again. You'll be redeemed. You're your up will be down and down will be up for you. Everything will be changed. Jesus Christ will be Lord of your life. And if He is, you'll never see a great white throne. You'll never stand before it. You'll never be judged. Because your judgment took place on a cross a long time ago when Jesus Christ died on your behalf, took the wrath of God in your place so that you could be saved. Oh, how great a Savior. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, you would help us as we get through chapter 2. It's going to be a hard chapter for us to hear, Father, but help us. Help us be strong. Help us to be discerning. I pray, Father, that you help our church to be an admonishing church, not a judging church, but an admonishing church to help one another with the specks that we have in our eyes. Thank you, Father, for your love, your kindness, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. I pray, Father, that every person we meet this week they could hear the message of Jesus Christ from us on how good God is. And His love for them is everlasting. And we know that, Father, by the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.